very exciting. Hello, Hello everyone. Yes, coming from California and New York, we're covering the country. Yeah, California, Brooklyn, Portland, and uh, where are you, Washington? Brian, exactly? Manassas, Virginia, right near DC. Nice, nice. Uh, so yeah, so we're back. We got a we got a jam packed uh, panel today. This is exciting for us, Terry. We have uh, we have guests who we're bringing on right at the top because they're so good. We don't uh, we we don't want to. We were dispensing with the amenities, right? We're just yes. bringing in, bringing our experts uh, right in. But uh, but before we get started with them, how are you? How how's everything? Oh, everything's going great. We are very, very busy right now. There's a lot going on. Um, and actually, my focus these days has been around diversity and inclusion work. Um, and a lot of campuses and corporations and everybody is looking for that, of course. Um, but I'm also, you know, we've got the election coming up in a couple of weeks. Everybody knows I'm a political scientist. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm keeping close track of that. And obviously, the political situation is having a huge impact on the COVID situation, but also what's happening on college campuses. Um, you know, we talked about this a little bit last week. There's an executive order that came out, uh, you know, keeping uh, you know, government entities from doing diversity training, basically, yeah. and it's impacting campuses more and more, um, mm -hmm. and other people who are government contractors. So that's an interesting development. But uh, maybe for a future, uh, it is this actually higher ed, right? Yes, we are planning on talking about diversity and inclusion in a couple mm -hmm. weeks. Here, uh, actually, mm -hmm. I think yes, very very soon. Very <laughs> actually, soon. not in, couple, in a week. Yeah, um, that's yeah. the the plan. So yeah, um, yeah, we, but 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 today uh, we decided to to focus instead on uh, COVID-19 uh, on campus, COVID-19 in terms of uh, its impact to campus life. Uh, both Brian and Rich have been doing uh, uh, champion-like work in addition to their designated uh, job descriptions and responsibilities. They've both been uh, taking on the mantle of helping us all understand what's going on as best we can uh, in terms of this pandemic that, that everyone's responding to, uh, and in particular, what's going on as we think about that on campus. Um, did we want, maybe uh, beginning with you, uh, Brian, and then maybe uh, concluding with you, Rich, can the two of you introduce yourselves? Uh, sure, I'd be glad to. Um, I, my name is Brian Alexander. I'm a senior scholar at Georgetown University. My job is as a futurist specializing in the future of higher education. So along the way, I do a lot of research, I do a lot of consulting, I make a lot of media, like writing books, uh, hosting uh, weekly uh, Future Trends Forum video discussions, and um, also teaching classes uh, part-time at Georgetown. And uh, just to jump in real quick, Brian, you did uh, write a book called Academia Next, where you were talking about a possible future in which a pandemic impacted uh, campus uh, life, I right? I yeah. did, my, my most recent book uh, from Johns Hopkins University Press. And uh, page 23 is now notorious as the, <laughs> right, the book was written in uh, you know, roughly 2016 or 2018. Uh, and uh, I invited readers to imagine what would happen if a pandemic struck uh, the world and how that would impact higher education. You know, I asked them to think about athletics and about teaching online. And nobody noticed that paragraph, I think, until about March. And uh, right. now I get all kinds of great static about it. You know, what did you do? What did you know? That kind of yes, thing. yes. <laughs> And then, uh, Rich, I don't know if you're ready to follow that, but uh, but we'd love to get uh, get your uh, your introduction as well. That's I don't I don't have a page 23, I think, <laughs> or whatever it was. So, but so I'm Rich Cor I'm Rich Corsi. I'm the dean of the Mossy College of Engineering and Computer Science at Portland State University. We're a a large, urban, diverse university. Um, 
And before that, I spent 25 years as a faculty member at the University of Texas at Austin, where, where Terry was. And, um, and at University of Texas at Austin, I had a pretty large research program that was focused on uh, indoor air quality and particularly human exposure to different types of pollutants in buildings and uh, including sort of strategies for how to reduce human exposure to those pollutants. I'm also the president of what's called the Academy of Fellows of the, uh, of the, um, of <laughs> the International <laughs> Society for Indoor Air Quality and Climate, or ISMA. Oh, wow. And that Academy of Fellows is, is sort of the, you know, internationally the best and the brightest indoor air quality researchers in the world. So mm. we've all been very active in networking for the last eight or nine months around this pandemic and, um, and strategizing on how we can best help the public understand what they needed to do, do to protect themselves and their families and friends. Wow. Yeah, you held, you held your own uh, with that last piece uh, there. there. Not, not to mention just, uh, you know, being a dean in, a, in an urban uh, college campus in Portland, but the indoor air quality, I imagine uh, many folks have been wanting to bend your ear uh, on, on that topic. And that's something that we'd love to get uh, some, some expert opinion on uh, as well. Terry, I'm, I'll kind of throw it to you to maybe kick it off. Uh, any sure. Any kickoff action? Well, you know, I, I'm going to start with Brian because he's been talking about the toggle term. And, you know, we're seeing that happening. So we're beyond the toggle term in a sense in that we've got campuses kind of switching back between, you know, being on campus to being off campus to being to being in dorms and, and so on to now having to prepare for what it's for those campuses that are already doing kind of hybrid or face to face. What is that? you know, going to look like as there's, you know, there's, so there's these task forces are having to cover a vast array of, of potential outcomes come January. Mm -hmm. Well, right now, I mean, we have, we have all kinds of challenges and problems. Uh, there's a, back in the spring and summer, uh, Eddie Maloney and Josh Kim wrote a, you know, a whole series of scenarios for how higher education did respond to COVID in the fall, and almost all of them have come true now. Um, uh, you know, everything from changing the calendar to either pushing for mostly online or mostly offline, uh, and various forms of blending. I mean, it's it's the one of the difficulties of this um, is that nobody is tracking this very well. Uh, we do not have good data about the number of infections or deaths uh, or injuries across uh, higher education right now. Uh, the New York Times has tried, I think, the hardest. Uh, they threw dozens of reporters at the problem, and they've maybe hit one-third of higher education, and their data is not good. Uh, they point out that uh, their data is all messed up in terms of timeline. So we don't know. I mean, we could have 200,000 infections. We just literally don't know. Uh, no one's tracking deaths except me, and uh, it's not a specialty of mine. Uh, and I've counted four, which include one university president and two students so far. Uh, but it's it's very difficult to plan or think about the entire sector uh, without that kind of big data. You mentioned toggle terms, so this is a, a term I invented back in April, and I thought that it was it was possible we would see universities and colleges stay open or stay online for a semester, but also that some would want to change that up during a semester. Uh, so I, you know, I like throwing a switch, like we did in March. So a campus might start off online and they decide everything's fine, invite people in halfway through, or they might do the reverse if they, you know, they're face to face, but it gets too hot. So they you know, switch everything online. Uh, nobody, nobody during the summer wanted to admit to planning on this. Um, I found hints of it in a few places. A, a couple of residential campuses said things like, welcome students, pack light 
<laughs> a little hand there, you know. Um, but once the semester started, we've seen uh, dozens of toggle term cases, and, and they're usually short. Uh, campuses will switch online for a week uh, or two. Uh, some have done that for the whole semester. Uh, we were just talking before the show began. My alma mater, the University of Michigan, was just ordered to do a toggle term by the mm -hmm. county. Uh, Washtenaw County said, all right, your, your infections are spiraling out of control, shelter in place. Uh, so they have to do all these classes online, although the university will also, they're a very science heavy uh, campus. They will also do uh, some labs in person, presumably with social distancing, PPE and, and et cetera. So I mean, it looks like the, we should expect more toggle terms as infections keep going. And infections are continuing to grow. I mean, depending on how you count this, we're possibly in the third big wave of uh, COVID-19 infections nationwide. Um, it's likely that winter will accelerate this. You can get all Game of Thrones and say, winter is coming. And it really, and it really is because, I mean, this is, be, is the matter I'm talking about what I'm about to point to, which is that people are gonna be inside more. Uh, in the north country uh, where they actually have winter um, on top of that there may be intersections uh, with uh, the flu um, in that someone with covid uh, who's already weak may be more susceptible to both infection and injury or death mm -hmm. and someone uh, with the flu ditto maybe uh, maybe weakened so um, I, I think we should expect all kinds of toggles being thrown as infections continue to grow the one bright spot is uh, death rates seem to be dropping I, I hope so I really hope so um, mm -hmm. uh, well, that's still early, early information right now. But. Yeah, then it does, it's, and it sounds like the treatments. Uh, there are some how scalable the treatments are, but there are some treatments that do seem to be more effect effective. And then we've also had uh, the spring and summer uh, to get the, the the clinical cases documented so that mm -hmm. we can start to share knowledge. And ideally, the Looks like the death rate among those hospitalized, in particular, is is something that seems to be moving in a in a favorable direction. So, but who knows? Uh, and uh, and then, Rich, I'd love to to get your perspective as someone who's been uh, really helping make the decisions for Portland State. Um, how has that been for you? Because in many ways, you know, Brian's looking at aggregating all this data. Uh, if you could maybe help us understand on a more uh, campus level, uh, university level, uh, what's what's it been like so far? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm proud of the fact that our university started in April with planning for the fall. So we didn't mm -hmm. wait too long. We're also on the quarter system. So we had the advantage of seeing all the semester schools go first mm -hmm. um, and learn from them. Um, we decided early on, you know, masks were going to be required everywhere on campus, inside buildings by all students, by all faculty, by all staff. The decision was made to to tie that requirement to the code of conduct of the university. Um, and so we have enforcement mechanisms for people that are not wearing masks, whether it's a student or a staff or a faculty member. Uh, we de decided to de-densify heavily. Um, that means most of the university is remote. We have about 25,000 students at the university. I think there's only a thousand on campus right now taking classes and everybody else is remote. So those are the kinds of classes that, that uh, Brian mentioned. You know, there's some classes that, that you, they're just difficult to do as remote classes. Mm -hmm. um, and so in, in some ways, uh, this is a pilot study for us. We're trying to sort of layer risk reduction strategies on, on top of risk reduction strategies for a relatively small number of students and small number of classes so we can learn uh, as opposed to going into this head over heels and making all sorts of mistakes. Mm -hmm. uh, we've redesigned our classrooms to make sure there's sufficient distancing between students. Most of the capacities in our classrooms are at maximum one third of what they would normally be. 
in terms of numbers of students. We're Portland, Oregon, so we already bring in a lot of a lot of outdoor air. Our percent outdoor air uh, for supplier is pretty high, but in some places we're increasing that even more from 50% to 75%. Mm-hmm. Um, we're replacing um, all of the MERV-8 filters, MERV-8 filters, in all of our buildings with MERV, and all of the buildings that we can do this for, where the mechanical systems can handle it, to MERV-13 filters, which are, if seated properly, very effective at removing uh, particles that are the size that are essentially the ride share for this virus that carry the virus. Yeah, um, we can do that for about ninety percent of our buildings, and the ten percent of the buildings we can't do it for, we're, we've just taken offline, and we're not mm-hmm. not going to have any classes in those buildings. We purchased a whole bunch of portable air cleaners, HEPA-based portable air cleaners, mm-hmm. uh, for classrooms less than a thousand square feet. Um, uh, we're trying to utilize outdoor facilities as much as possible, since we have so few students coming to campus, and we have a lot of above-ground parking garages. We're trying to use the above-ground parking garages. For things like choir practice um, and you know wind ensemble, uh, mm. which also adds a little ambiance to the campus, so, um, <laughs> and then just you know educate the community as much as possible. My particular college, which I oversee, um, we are completely on lockdown. Uh, we are everything is remote. We are letting um, we are letting um, staff and faculty and graduate students access the building, but. Uh, everything's done on a calendar basis, so we know exactly who's in the building when. Uh, we've opened up all of our research labs, but with restrictions on the number of people that can work in them and those types of things. And I send lots of reminders to the to the to my college community about the importance of safety. Picking up on something Brian said, you know, we're moving into the winter, and it's 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 not just indoors. Um, it's it's the environmental conditions that change during the winter time too. So a great paper just came out. Um, first one I've seen on how the SARS-CoV-2 virus responds to temperature and relative humidity changes. Mm. It's actually really similar to influenza viruses and other viruses we see. So when it's cold out and you bring air in and you warm it up, you really drop the relative humidity indoors. And the virus becomes uh, much, it, it basically is harder to inactivate. It stays active longer, both in the air and particles and also on surfaces. So that's bad. But when you drop the relative humidity and you have an infector in the space, what happens is when particles and, and larger droplets come out of their mouth, with low relative humidity, those particles shrink really rapidly. So you can take things that we characterize as ballistic droplets or you know larger particles that may not stay in the air that long, and they can be rapidly shrunk down, concentrating the viruses in them to particles that can stay in the air for a long time. So this is just bad all around when it comes mm-hmm. to winter time, and we just have to make sure that all of us, whether we're on college campuses or anywhere else, have to keep our guard up for that reason. Yeah, I'd love to maybe, first off, uh, Ballistic Droplets is a fantastic band name, although uh, it's it's not uh, it's not something to joke about. But uh, the, the far, far be it from, uh, from me to, to not joke in that case. But uh, but yeah, the, the thing I'd be curious about, Rich, is like what sorts of, what are the ventilation equivalents of PPE or like if folks were to, seek out the right uh, equipment or things to retrofit uh, a campus or a classroom uh, to make it more, uh, I guess, less communicable, make the virus less communicable. communicable. Um, I'd love to hear some of your perspective on that, whether it's, um, you know, actual portable devices or there are things to do with your windows or uh, any thoughts you might have on that. Yeah. So, uh, so I always, speak in terms of layered risk reduction. There's no one thing that you can do that's going to make the, the risk go to zero, right? So, you know, increasing ventilation reduces the risk. It doesn't eliminate it. 
using MERV-13 or better filters reduces the risk. It reduces the particles that carry the virus in there. It doesn't eliminate it. Uh, using a portable air cleaner reduces the risk, but it doesn't eliminate it. But when we start layering all those things onto one another with requirements of everybody wearing masks, my, my modeling, I've been doing a lot of mathematical modeling of all these different scenarios for classrooms on my campus and other environments. You know, you can get to 95% risk reduction. I mean, you can get to that place if you're smart and you and you do all of those things and you and you combine those things. Mm -hmm. uh, the this simplest things are required masks and distancing, and then after that, you can just start layering on increased ventilation, better filtration. Um, UV is something that I think we really haven't tapped in enough. But UV is proven technology. If it's done right, you know, you don't want to harm people by having UV radiation in their eyes or on their skin. But if it's done right, it's tremendous at inactivating viruses, including SARS-CoV-2 virus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, I'm gonna give Rich a chance. Do you mind finding that reference and sharing it with our audience? Um, um, the, the paper you mentioned previously about the aerosols in winter? Uh, oh sure, yeah, I can yeah, I can do that. I'll try to, to I'll try to dig that up. It might take me a few minutes. And yeah, so. We'll go back to Brian while you do that. Well, I've got some ideas and some responses, and and these are the responses not of someone who is an indoor air quality expert, but someone who's a, a futurist. And um, so, looking ahead to the next uh, five years, I've been talking with a lot of people who work in uh, architecture and renovation, and there's some really interesting discussions about this. I mean, so one one idea is if you're building right now, and that's it, can't, it may seem strange to some people that campuses are thinking about building, making new buildings or doing renovations when their finances are being hit so hard. But the fact is, a lot of these campuses already have these underway. Plus, mm -hmm. the cost of money is relatively cheap and it's easier to bond. So uh, you may get the, the kind of terrifying specter of new buildings going up while faculty are being laid off. But that's something uh, that we might see. But those buildings going up, how do you how do they change in, in the result of COVID if, if we assume COVID lasts at least a year from now? Uh, and there's some interesting ideas. Uh, for example, outside of academia, uh, there's talk of restaurants that are doubling their uh, uh, drive through lanes and then shrinking their uh, in room uh, dining rooms. So if you put this on campuses, uh, do we, for example, have, try to have more rooms that have outside exposure, mm -hmm. you know, fewer interior only rooms? And mm -hmm. the ones who have outside exposure, do they have bigger windows, more windows, bigger doors, more doors? Do you try and build kind of, you know, plaza spaces? And then the building, the rooms, do they do you make them bigger? Because you need to need to hold more people who are socially distanced. And you also make tiny rooms. Uh, you know, rooms that are just designed for one person in seclusion. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that can literally change the, the look and feel of our campus, not to mention uh, the flow of it. I mean, so that, that's one thing to think about. The other thing though, and this is the, it's, it's kind of, I guess, almost a subterranean current right now, is the safest thing a campus can do is just teach online. Mm -hmm. And again, our data is not great on this, being it looks like roughly a third of campuses are all online or mostly online. Uh, and that is the safest way. But uh, campuses are committed to face-to-face -face for various reasons, including uh, faculty desire, student preference, um, a lot of attitudes, and above all, the money to be gained from yep. uh, from residential housing. Uh, back when all this began, Tressie McMillan Cotton said, in her view, this, the great sociologist and writer said, um, it's it's better for an institution to die than a person. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. not what we think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, but that's the majority consensus is otherwise. Mm -hmm. Right, but the another issue that we talked a little bit about last week was that 
we've got all these students. Okay, so you're Portland State. Most of your students are local. How they're still out there in the community and right. they're partying. And yeah, you know, I heard this about USC. You know, they have all these students who live in off-campus housing who have actually even even if they lived far away, they were still coming and going to that off-campus housing. Mm -hmm. And you know, so these communities are now being impacted not just by the campus, but by the students who, you know, I, I saw this all across California um, in the Cal State system went completely online, but then there are all these students who went, you know, to Chico, to San yeah. Diego, you know, Long Beach, and yeah. they're living in those communities still. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, the, one of the great problems here uh, is, is that town-gown relations are in this terrible, terrible spot uh, where it's really a lose-lose situation. I mean, on the one hand, uh, a lot of campus uh, neighbors uh, depend on students, as well as faculty and staff, but primarily students because they're larger numbers, uh, economically. You know, these are the ones who are going to rent apartments, they're going to yeah. pizza, gonna have tattoos, I mean, all this stuff. Um, and they're really dependent on it. And, well, I mean, to the extent that you don't have all of your students, faculty and staff there, that's an economic hit. Uh, um, now, the flip side of that is that if the students do come back, then they run the risk of infecting everybody. And this is a deeper problem than it looks, because you can think about just the image of the of the students who live on campus, the residential students, maybe a quarter of American students, roughly or so. Right? And, and there's the image of them staying on campus, you know, kind of quarantined. Okay. And they can infect each other, and that's bad. And that's a whole kettle, that's a whole, whole series of problems. But uh, they don't. Uh, they move off campus for all kinds of reasons, including housing, including work, including family. And then there's all that majority of students who don't live on campus who commute and can keep going back and forth. So they interact and they get to carry the virus out into the community around them. And then this becomes a real problem. So either way, uh, the community is in trouble. I, I was watching Middlebury College, the town of Middlebury, Vermont, very, very small town. Uh, and uh, the merchants were urging students to stay on campus and not come back. Which sounds right. kind of suicidal, but, but one more point to uh, to make about this is that, I mean, America as a whole, like the rest of the developing or developed world, is aging. Uh, and one side effect of that is we are living longer. And so we have a lot of retirees who would like to move into the area around colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. And we know statistically that people over 70 are by far the most likely to be injured or killed by, by COVID. Uh, mm -hmm. So what do you do if you're in the community? You know, how how can you try and preserve this? One solution we saw was from Washtenaw County in Michigan, which just slapped down the University of Michigan and said, shelter in place. Mm -hmm. A lot of yeah. other down stories like that. They don't get a lot of news. Um, but that's one dimension to this that we have to pay attention to. Yeah, and I would add at Portland State University, about 10% of our students live on campus. So we don't have as many as a, as a traditional <laughs> university like Michigan and Illinois or University of Texas, those kinds of places. But um, our students tend to be a little bit older uh, on average. I think the average age is five or six years older than for an undergraduate than the average. And a lot of our students, roughly 20% or so, have families. They have children. Hmm. Um, and they commute, uh, I think 60-something percent commute by mass transit every day, either bus or light rail. So when you look at those pinch points, there's probably much you know, a uh, higher probability of becoming infected off campus than on campus, just in mass transit, on a bus, uh, when your children come home from K, you know, from their sixth grade school. Uh, and um, and then a lot of our students also work. And so those that are still working in, in especially in the service industry are prone to becoming infected. So that for us means 
we're going to have people coming to campus that may be infected. So we have to layer as much risk reduction on top of our campus as possible to protect mm -hmm. the campus. It's so difficult to, to change people's lives, but you can't tell people you're, you can't work, right? Uh, you, you can't see your children, right? So in, in our case, it's those things are just gonna happen and we need to protect campus as much as possible. For Brian, we do have a dashboard. We do have a COVID dashboard. I think we've had three or four infections so far. Um, hmm. Fortunately, you know, nobody's died. That's remarkable. That's a good, that's a good sign of, of your leadership and what you're doing. I, I, I do want to uh, you know, respond to a couple of things that you just said, Rich. And one of them is that uh, in many ways, you are the nor yours is more the normative campus in the United States. Uh, uh, the, the students are not all traditional graduates, um, that you are an urban campus. Um, and that your students are mostly from the area, uh, and also that a lot of your students are commuting, uh, and then that really puts you more in the normative line. That's what we should be paying more attention to, um, mm -hmm. I believe, as we think about this. Um, the other thing is, though, uh, if I were a student at your campus, I would not be living there because I'd be living in Powell's, and uh, I, I would just never come out. I mean, that's, <laughs> for the few of you who, who don't know Powell's, it's one of the greatest bookstores in the universe. Um, it is. It is a. It's an astonishing fixture at Portland. I. I usually just walk in and give them my wallet and say, "Tell me when I'm done." You know, and uh, have a good. Um, but, it, but in all in all seriousness, uh, I. I think. Um, I think you're doing a great job. Um, and I. I'm curious. What do you think campuses can do, uh, once they have to trap everybody in buildings, uh, for winter, uh, which is pretty much nationwide. I mean, I can. I can joke about Florida or about Texas, but you know that's. It's it's difficult for them to to do outside classes in that in January or February. Mm -hmm. um, you know, is there anything else they can do to uh, uh, besides your your multi layered strategy to try to reduce the spread of the virus? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I mean, our the strategies we talk about are just about everything you can do. I think de-densifying in the wintertime, if you can, is and I don't mean de-densifying, you know, getting people off campus, which you were talking about, uh, which can have negative impacts on the community, but just people as remote as possible. You know, you just don't yeah. want people coming together in the wintertime. So we just I, have to be extra, extra, extra vigilant. Yeah. And, and I, keep our keep our guard not only up, but really up in the wintertime. Mm -hmm. Well, I have a related question uh, really for all three of you, uh, which is there's been a lot of talk about hybrid or high flex or, you know, some blend of, you know, it's not binary. It's not either they come to a face-to-face -face class uh, or they are purely online. In many cases, there is some kind of blend. Are there examples of good hybridization or bad hybridization or any guidelines when, when you wanna analyze whether someone's hybrid program, whether they should even run it at all? So, um, so I'd love to get perspective, uh, you know, maybe starting with you, Brian, Rich, and uh, Terry, just any perspective on hybrid or, or flex or any of that kind of stuff. Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, the, it's really a huge dynamic with a, a, a giant range of possibilities right now. Uh, mm -hmm. And the uh, Brian Beatty's high flex notion is just one part of that. So, I mean, the, the high flex notion. When we last talked to Brian, he said it's basically the idea that students and faculty can decide individually if they're going to be present for a face-to-face -face class or remotely uh, participating. Um, and so that's a an intra-class decision to make. Uh, and that's, it's quite doable. We know how to do it. I've done it before. 
um, it requires support. And uh, one of the things that we have to do is we have to figure out how to allocate resources for the hardware, for the software, for the bandwidth, as well as for the professional development so the faculty members learn how to teach that way. So I mean, that's one piece of this. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of good practices about that. But then there's a kind of, I think of like a catalog level uh, time uh, when um, my son goes to the University of Vermont and what they did uh, this uh, fall was they basically created two catalogs uh, for fall classes. Uh, one for students who'd be face-to-face, -face, one for students who were online. And so they, I, I think the total number of offerings expanded, but each catalog was smaller because they, they just couldn't grow that, they couldn't double the size of their faculty. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and they're, they're doing that and, and that seems to work. I and mean, the total number of students on campus is, I don't know, half uh, of what it was. Uh, and then of course, the you know, corresponding number is, is online. And, and that seems to have a lot of advantages. That's a kind of high flex at the strategic level. Um, I, I do think though that uh, one of the great problems of this is one of the challenges is we have to test the heck out of people in order for this to work. Uh, we want to test Rich if he's gonna be at home uh, taking classes or giving classes but when Rich is on campus. And, and again and again, I mean, every outbreak we've seen, it's because they are either, uh, the campuses aren't testing or the students are in fraternity. I'm sorry, they're deciding not to uh, take tests. Uh, and and this, this just keeps happening again and again. I, I, I do, I, can I make a data angle on this? Can I just? Yeah, yeah, sure. please. It, it's interesting to me. I mean, one of the things that COVID does is it takes a lot of trends and then just accelerates them. Right? Yeah. And one of the things that we had going into 2020 was this ferocious debate about what to do with student data. You know, on the one hand, do you use it to improve the student experience through advising, et cetera? Or on the other hand, is it intrusive and bad and part of the general Silicon Valley evilness? Um, and that debate was raging. Well, now the debate gets stronger because to do public health, you have to gather data on people. You have to track them. There is a kind of Orwellian nature to public health. Yeah. Uh, and so now you get things like there was an app, uh, I believe Albion College, uh, which got a lot of static because it was tracking where students physically were. You think, well, that, that's what you should do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and if you're trying to figure out who's infected. So mm -hmm. I, I want to put this out there that the whole debate about data now is a lot trickier uh, and, and even more passionate because it is literally a matter of life and death. Mm -hmm. And I live in a city that I think is the first city, I think it's the first city in the United States that's banned facial recognition systems <laughs> in the city. So uh, people, people are, are, are very uh, aware of any sort of monitoring of them in Portland. So mm -hmm. that makes things a lot more difficult. Yeah. Um, um, do you mind if I jump in? Because there's a question that please. comes up because there's been so much focus on winter and you know, being indoors, but there's also summer. I mean, in places like Arizona, Texas, Florida, I mean, so I'm curious if there's been any look at, you know, what happens and, and also allergies, you know, us coming from, we both were at Austin, in Austin, allergies are a huge problem there. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering if there's any interaction there. So, you know, one question is just heat and the mm -hmm. other is kind of the allergies and humidity and, and things that, that impact certain areas more than others. Well, I would say a lot of the things that we do to prevent um, to prevent exposure to particles that convey the virus that causes COVID-19 infection also work for allergies. So mm -hmm. um, one of the, I think one of the really nice things that's coming out of, if you can think of a nice thing coming out of the pandemic, is I think that the population is learning new terms, 
they're becoming more in tune with the importance of their indoor environment. Um, and, and many of the strategies we talk about for reducing your exposure to aerosols that contain uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus will also work for allergy, you know, allergen triggers will work for mm -hmm. all sorts of other particles. So, so there's some benefit there. Uh, having lived in Austin for 25 years, I understand allergies. I had horrible uh, juniper, juniper pollen allergies. Yeah. So I used to just stay, you know, I stayed indoors more than I ever wanted to during that part of the season. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a big fan of portable air cleaners. If you get a, a, an appropriate portable air cleaner in the right space, you can drop particle levels in air. I've done testing in my own house, a lot of testing in my own house in Austin. 90% um, reductions in particle levels in air with the right portable HEPA-based portable air cleaner in the yeah. right size room. So there, there are things you can do to really reduce your exposure to everything from allergens to SARS-CoV-2 virus in, yeah. in aerosols. As a yeah. father, father of a two-year-old, I was curious about uh, humidifiers too. Because whenever I go to the pediatrician, uh, they're they're all pumping full blast and kind of got us through our first winter in New York uh, this past winter, at least. Uh, so, any thoughts on how effective they are? I, I've also seen there are some models that that combine the purifier with the humidifier. So, I, I don't know if you have any perspective mm -hmm. on that, Rich. Yeah. So, I did put a link to the preprint that just came out um, mm -hmm. um, for for your viewers. It turns out that there is a sweet spot, right? That's you know between about 45 to 60 percent relative humidity, where you get your maximum rate of inactivation of the virus in air and on surfaces. So if you can keep mm -hmm. humidity in that sweet spot, that seems to be a good place to be. If you exceed that relative humidity and you get to higher levels of relative humidity, the, the curve seems to be smile-shaped. So you can actually get to a place where the virus can actually. Um, uh, survive a little bit longer on surfaces and in the air. So you want to be kind of in that sweet spot. Yeah. Um, I don't, I, you know, I, I've seen, but I'm not a health expert, you know, I'm not a health scientist, so I don't, right. I don't want to get too, too deep into this, but, you know, I think there are, you know, if your nasal passages dry out, um, I think there are additional risks for exposure mm -hmm. um, to, to particles that you inhale through your nose. So, uh, but that's about all I can say on that issue. Yeah. Just a quick, quick follow-up on that too, Rich is, is more, what worked in the case of Portland State structurally uh, in terms of taking responsibility for stuff like ventilation or HVAC? Uh, you know, is that is that something that typically is handled on a campus, like university by university, campus by campus basis? Are there are there any uh, best practices or, or recommendations you might have in terms of how to do do that effectively? Yeah, so we have, uh, and I and I didn't know this until until this pandemic uh, and, and having to interact with our campus facilities people a lot, they're really crackerjack. They know what they're mm -hmm. doing. Um, they follow all of the guidelines. They're very tuned into what's called the American Society for Heating, Refrigerating and Air Conditioning Engineers, ASHRAE, which mm -hmm. has put out some really good guidance during the pandemic. So they're doing, you know, you know, they're on top of that. They're trying to do what, what ASHRAE says we should be doing during the pandemic, um, which is essentially better filtration and more ventilation you know, more outside air supply. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're following those guidelines. They're also following guidelines for the other things that we don't talk about during this pandemic. You know, a lot of buildings stay empty. People aren't using faucets in buildings. What happens when you don't run water through premise plumbing is that you build up biofilms and the pipes that mm. Legionella bacteria just thrive in. And so then people mm. come into the building, they turn on the faucet and you're, you've got aerosols that are releasing, you know, Legionella bacteria into the air, which is harmful. So they've been on top of that. They've been going mm -hmm. through this whole pandemic, going into buildings and turning on faucets that haven't been used for a while. So 
um, they're really they're really a crackerjack team, and and, mm -hmm. and I've been really impressed with them. Some universities um, uh, contract a lot of that work out. So, um, you know, for example, the University of Texas, where Terry and I were, they they have a they have a really great facilities team on campus. But when it comes to changing filters and all those kinds of things, they usually hire contractors to to do all of that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I'm not sure um, that, answers, that answers your question, but no, um, it does. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the the humidity question, you know, is a really interesting one, especially for places, you know, like Texas and, and Florida that have really high humidity. Um, so mm -hmm. actually, dehumidifiers might be useful in places like that during the summer when you get mm -hmm. such high levels of humidity. Right. Which is what a good centralized air conditioning system does, right? Yes, exactly. But yeah. in California, it, it, not all of us have. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it does. It does make me wonder too, like what, um, what, like a HVAC or what kind of sensors could help you get a good reading on your environment. And uh, Rich, I don't know if you have any perspective on that. Like, how easy is it is it to figure out whether you're in like a danger zone in terms of uh, humidity or particulate matter? Or are there sensors out there that are that are pretty effective uh, for this? Um, yeah, to, to do particles right, um, it, it costs a lot of money. There are cheap, you know, $200 particle sensors that are plus or minus a factor of three in terms of accuracy. And so it's difficult to use those other than to look at trends, see mm -hmm. it go up. Things are probably going up, but you, yep. the accuracy of that is not that great. There, there are others that are promoting using carbon dioxide sensors, especially in an environment you're about to go into. If you do go into a restaurant, which I'm not doing these days, or you know, you go into any facility where there's there's a number of people and it might be poorly ventilated, is to actually take the carbon dioxide measurement indoors for five or six minutes. It usually takes the instruments about that long to stabilize what the levels are. Mm -hmm. um, there is this really cool concept called a rebreathe fraction. So you can take a carbon dioxide measurement indoors mm -hmm subtract from that the outdoor carbon dioxide levels, which are you know usually around 400, 410 parts per billion. So you can subtract those one from the other and then divide by the carbon dioxide level on the breath of an individual, which mm. turns out to be about 38,000 parts per million, depending upon your diet. So mm. if you're a vegetarian, it's a little bit higher. If you're a heavy meat eater, it's a little bit less, but around that level, right? So yeah. you take you take that ratio, and that gives you what's called the rebreathe fraction. And you can get that simply by taking a simple carbon dioxide measurement indoors. The rebreathe fraction is the fraction of air that you inhale with every breath that came out of the collective mouths of other people in that space. Mm -hmm. So a rebreathe fraction of 5%, for example, is really high. You're breathing a lot of other people's breath. Another way of saying that, if it's 5%, essentially every 20 breaths you're taking is like, kissing somebody inhaling their breath right so the five percent is a pretty high read fraction and there are probabilistic models that have been developed that are actually pretty good where you can take that rebreathe fraction enter it into the model and i've been doing modeling for uh, about half the classrooms on the psu campus doing this wow. taking it different levels of people and you can predict that if there's an infector in the space how many other people that are in that space will become infected that requires one additional parameter, which is called a quanta generation rate, which is kind of the relative infectiousness of this particular virus, right? And we know it's more infectious than, than influenza strains, right? And we know what these quanta generation rates are for influenza, so we can have higher numbers. And there's been enough outbreaks now that researchers are actually determining this value from all of these outbreaks so that we can put them in the models and say, boy, if we had that that generation rate, 
that we saw in Restaurant X in China or in the Spinco Gymnasium in Hamilton, Ontario. If, if we put that same infector in a classroom, what would that mean in terms of the number of probable disease cases that came out of a 75-minute lecture in a classroom? Mm. But it all starts with this measurement of rebreathe fraction, the fraction mm. of air that you inhale that came out of other people's breaths. And you can measure that pretty simply with carbon dioxide measurements. There are carbon dioxide sensors now that you can purchase online that are you know, reasonably accurate for 100 bucks. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So, so perhaps in the future, we see a lot of people pulling their carbon dioxide sensors out when they walk into yeah. A pharmacy, or you know, wherever they're going, or a classroom. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a sense of the, the, the first album title for the ballistic droplets, maybe the, the rebreathe, <laughs> rebreathe fraction. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, but, Brian, this is getting very sci-fi, and I did find out uh, from yeah. uh, while well, prepping, I didn't realize Terry is also a sci-fi fan. So yeah. once I heard that, I realized we had enough of a quorum that we could probably, and and actually, Rich, you're sort of leading us in this direction. But, uh, but if we start looking out into the future, uh, which is something I know you talk about a lot, Brian, um, where might this go? I know you you talk lots of times about possible futures and getting scenario-based and getting creative about where things might go. Uh, maybe it was just Rich's reverie there got me going too, but at any any perspective on uh, where, where we might be heading? Yeah, um, one is I think Rebreathe Fraction would make a great name for a political group or a, <laughs> Uh, oh, it's the rebreathe fraction. Um, no, I, I, I think, um, you know, a lot of it depends. Uh, I'll defer to Rich on this. Uh, a lot of it depends on on how the pandemic plays out. Uh, I mean, so do we, you know, do we get to a point where we manage to wrestle it down in impact down to something like the seasonal flu uh, through some combination of some kind of vaccine? I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, public health measures, uh, possible mutation, uh, you know, and I'm 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 not sure how long that would take to happen. Uh, I'm very skeptical about a vaccine right now because of the production process. That is, we don't have one. Uh, we have some that are in trial. Uh, we don't know their efficacy yet. Uh, the Big Johnson and Johnson one was just paused, which is good. Um, but it takes a long time to derive those, even at uh, warp speed, according to our our, our president. Uh, mm-hmm. But we, uh, but on top of that, once one is in, and it'll be the first time that we've ever had a vaccine for a coronavirus. So let's just say we get one. It has to go through the production process. There's a lot of money involved, but this still can take some significant amount of time, depending on what's involved in making that. Uh, then we have to get to the distribution process, and this is a political cultural nightmare that we haven't looked at yet. Um, I mean, already there's some initial articles saying, okay, who gets the first doses? And at first it sounds kind of obvious. You think, oh, how about first responders? How about medical personnel? Well, then you think, well, how about people over 70? Oh, actually, uh, how about men? Because they die in much greater numbers. Or how, I mean, You see where this goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we have to think about who makes this? If, let's just say, Britain manufacturing, um, will the rest of the world be happy to have it? Um, if, if China has one that actually works, just think how that plays out. Uh, and then we have the political dimension as well for who decides to actually take the vaccine. So let's just say, uh, hypothetically, Trump gets reelected, Operation Warp Speed succeeds, there's a vaccine. How many Democrats are just going to be appalled at the idea and won't want to take it? If Biden wins, the reverse can happen. On top of that, all the polling I've seen has just been lamentable. Uh, you have probably half the country saying that we just won't take 
uh, a vaccine, including populations that are at greater risk, predominantly black and Latino populations. Mm -hmm. um, so, and not to mention the, the, the bipartisan, eccentric, to be nice, uh, anti-vax populations who right. just think this is the mark of Bill Gates or the devil or some combination thereof. Um, and so even if, if we have this produced and distributed and not enough people take it, we just won't do as much good. That's assuming it's a powerful enough vaccine and that it's able, they're able to generate new doses as mutations occur, which is what the flu vaccine does. So oh, if all of that happens, what, what is it like to have, say, two or three, four or five years of COVID-19 life? Yeah. And then, then I mean, that's a deep thing to think about. Yeah. Uh, no one's thinking about this now because we're so we're gobsmacked by this right now. We deal with this yeah. right now. But uh, to, a small example, I'm an extrovert. Uh, I, and all introverts know extroverts are born designed to torment them, right? And that's what we do. We ask the introverts for their thoughts and opinions on being, you know, shouted at and everything. Um, I love crowds and I do a lot of work with people. Right now, just nine months into this, I flinch when I see other people. Actually, when I watch a movie, some people get close together, I get nervous. Yeah. I'm thinking about what, what does this do to our society? Mm -hmm. uh, I already mentioned the, uh, the changes to the built environment, which we'll be able, literally be able to see. COVID era architecture is going mm -hmm. to be thing in just a few months. Um, but think about as well what this does to the economy. Uh, I mean, how many businesses are super giants because they've they've, they've prospered? You know, Apple, Amazon, yeah. and so on. And how many are just are just you know off the radar now? Yeah. I, I told my wife I, I used to fly one to six times a, a month. Now I have dreams of airports, and and that's a terrible thing. Uh, and they're all bad dreams because air, air travel is horrible in the U.S. Um, but they're weird now because it's not part of my life. Mm -hmm. um, you know how how many businesses, other businesses, will just vanish? Um, you know what does this do to our labor force? I mean, the ramifications of this just keep twisting and building. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And higher ed is 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 part of that. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, one short answer is we're just much more digital. Mm -hmm. You know, yep. online and and blended. Well, I, mm -hmm. I would I'd love to hear from from Rich where he where he sees the pandemic itself headed. Yeah, so great points. Uh, what you said about uh, the vaccine is something that's been on my mind a lot. All the things you said, Brian, but also, um, you know, if 60% uh, get the vaccine and the vaccine is 50% effective, you know, we've got 30% of the population. And my great fear is that there's going to be a lot of people that are going to say, great, there's a vaccine now, so let's let our guard down. Yeah. And we end up going in the wrong direction with the vaccine. That's, mm -hmm. that's a big fear. Um, I'll say that I've I was going to the gym six days a week for the last 25 years. Mm. And I stopped going to the gym in late February because I could just see this thing coming. It's had, that's had an impact on me. The gym has always been the place where I just wind down. You know, I get it all out from tough days mm. and I don't have that anymore. So I'm personally trying to find new ways of doing that. And, you know, walking in my neighborhood just, you know, it's okay, but it does, doesn't quite do it like the gym did for me. So I worry about, you know, how I'm going to continue to deal with this for five years. Um, and yeah. I think, I think if I'm thinking about that, then obviously I think a lot of people are thinking about it. There is this COVID fatigue and, and it worries me that, that people will let their guard down on, on the, on the architecture front that Brian mentioned, 
Um, about 20 years ago, researchers in Denmark, and these were you know, big names in the indoor airfield, they're members of the International Academy that I mentioned, were really promoting what was called personal ventilation uh, in furniture. And so this was a design so that individuals working at their desk or their computer would essentially be able to, to dial up greater you know, purified air uh, mm-hmm. that didn't come from the indoor space. So what they were getting basically in their breathing zone was air that didn't have any rebreathed air in it. Mm-hmm. And I, I suspect that there's going to be a lot more attention paid to that um, uh, in, in the future, is how do we redesign furniture, not just mm-hmm. buildings, but buildings and furniture and buildings to provide us with, with higher quality air so we're not breathing other people there. Um, yeah. There actually was a, I believe there was a company in, in Denmark that actually started producing furniture that, mm. that provided that to people that had all the elements in it that you could plug into a essentially a wall that would, that would have high, high purity, uh, high quality air coming in. I don't know yeah. where they are, if they still exist, but it's not something that looked like it took off 20 years ago. Maybe this is the time that those kinds of things are taking off for yeah. making, making healthier buildings. Well, it's, it's right. interesting just to kind of build on Brian's point, like how how far ahead can people plan when there's a lack of clarity, you know, there's some optimism, maybe we get a vaccine in the next six months, but then there's also realism around it, maybe a much longer time period. Like, how do you think about architecture? How do you think about retrofitting? How do you think about new builds uh, when the plan might've already been out there? You know? And I'd like to come back to the economic question because, you know, even if we do have these resources out there, you know, even just buying a HEPA filter, uh, you know, right now, I, I've been looking at them mainly because of um, the smoke we, we've been yeah. getting in California, right. which is a whole other issue. <laughs> but, yeah. um, you know, they're expensive to get, you know, good ones. And so we get into the class issue, you know, forget yeah. the fact that we have, you know, millions of people unemployed, you know, there's going to be a class divide here between mm-hmm. even within the institutions and universities of people who can afford filters, people who can't, you know, mm-hmm. students, you know, for, you know, especially at a place like Portland State, you know, don't have a lot of extra money. Um, and, you know, it's going to be just a, a really interesting development to see how this works out. But um, yeah, I put a comment in the notes as well. You know, the way that people are responding to masks is a model for how people are going to respond to the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, because what we're seeing is there's a political divide. You know, as a political scientist, I've seen the data, you know, people who think masks should be worn. And, and as you already mentioned, there's a political divide around the vaccine. Um, but there's also class divides that are going to get sharpened and inequality is going to increase uh, mm-hmm. during this time period. And, you know, t- traditionally higher ed has been the place where we were able to mitigate some of those inequalities. And the question is, how are higher education institutions going to be able to respond mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, is not just leaving out all these people who are, are getting you know, caught up in the economic and, and you know, health yeah. issues that are yeah. being raised? No, but yeah. it's, it's very hard. I mean, you, you've got this uh, interesting stress throughout the labor market, you know, which is um, do you go to work risking infection um, because you don't have a choice? I mean, it's the way that America has structured its social safety net. Um, and uh, we, you know, how many workers of all, of all kinds, of all levels, you know, uh, and so many, so many personal decisions getting made. You know, what about the middle middle aged person? who goes to work at a restaurant knowing that at home they have a, a parent uh, who is vulnerable. What about mm-hmm. teenagers who are trying to get some work experience, um, but they don't want to infect you? I mean, 
Uh, but this plays out on campuses. Uh, there was, I don't know if you all saw this, the University of Florida president just made this, this short video where he said, um, please come back to campus faculty, grad students, we need you to teach. And if you don't, they're gonna be firings. And- uh, <laughs> I did not see that. <laughs> now you can press three minutes into one sentence, but that's exactly how we laid it out. He said, come back mm -hmm. to campus, we need you because the teaching in person is so important. We love it, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And besides, um, we're having financial issues and without enough face teaching, we're gonna have to lay off people, just so you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so campus is, I mean, the question of equity on campus uh, comes right back to that. And then you think about the majority of students, like I'm positive, uh, the majority of uh, rich students um, in, in Portland who are working part-time or full-time. Um, you know, how how to balance that terrible uh, sort of back and forth. I mean, I'm amazed that uh, enrollment only went down 4% this semester. I was really expecting it to be more than that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, but that's those numbers. We have to parse them a bit. I think we're going to have to wait and see because I think then I've seen some analyses lately that say that it's different for different groups, like grad students versus undergrad and sure. community a, college and and yeah, so yeah. on. Yeah, and, yeah. So, I mean, the National yeah. Playhouse broke it down pretty clearly. I mean, the undergrad population dropped more steeply than that. Yeah, uh, grad student population went up. But what's interesting is that the grad student population went up almost entirely based on certificates not masters or phds uh, yeah. all sectors all undergrad sectors lost population except for one and that's the for-profit sector which may have finally turned a corner after being clobbered for the past what seven years uh, mm -hmm. and so uh i mean that isn't necessarily a good thing for uh, all all, uh, all takers uh, yeah. and then you know international students went down to like 16 percent um mm -hmm. and first year students really dropped Exactly. If if we met if somehow I managed to make uh, rich um, an emperor of the United States and get out the uh, a really great uh, vaccine and it's out there and everyone takes it, we're still going to have that freshman hole, you know, for yep. the next, what two, three, five years. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it, it's uh, yeah, the stats are fascinating. We're referring to the uh, National Clearinghouse data, uh, which just came out last week. Uh, yeah. If I could follow up on something that Terry said about portable air cleaners and the fact that they are expensive and there are, uh, you know, a lot of people can't afford them. So about a month and a half ago, I, with that with that very issue in mind, I proposed a way that people could build their own portable air cleaners that would be very effective, uh, where you actually make the walls of the portable air cleaner out of MERV 12 or MERV 13 filters, and you attach a box fan to it and seal it very nicely, and you suck air through the filters, and um, after I tweeted that on social media, about two days later, people started popping up with this design and it became known as the Corsi box. And I feel bad about that. <laughs> I didn't actually build, I didn't build one. I just said, here's a concept. And all these people are coming up with these great designs and people are now starting to show results from the application of these things. And they're just as good as the $300 HEPA-based portable air cleaners you can purchase in terms of their clean air delivery rates. And you can build one for about $30 to $40, you know, a box, a decent box fans, 20 bucks. You get two or three filters, to, you know, an extra $15. So, I mean, that's, that's another thing that's come out of this pandemic. That's interesting is that is a public kind of coming in tune to, I can take control of these things myself. If I can't afford it, I can build one. Now $40 is still going to be expensive to a lot of people. It's much better than $300.
Oh yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And that's something that, um, you know, I'm going to take to my community organizations and, and uh, start talking about it because that's something that community organizations could even raise money and, and you know, help get local and I'm close yeah. to Stanford. Maybe we could get some Stanford students to come in and build some of these things and pass them mm. out to families in the mm -hmm. area. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so the Corsi box, uh, yes, is the title for our next uh, ballistic <laughs> album. So we're, the, the, the band is together, guys. <laughs> we're, we're getting close to time, though. So uh, so I think maybe uh, final thoughts. Do we want to get any of those? Any, anything coming up out of the chat that looks interesting aside from the I definitely want to hear about the Vermont later, uh, among other things, uh, which I think yes, was, was Brian, Brian's offering. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, we got about five minutes, so it'd be great to get uh, maybe any final perspective from folks before we wrap. Uh, just just really quickly, Vermont later was one. It's a design invented by uh, students and faculty at the University of Vermont. Um, mm. and so nice. It's a, it's a nice idea. Nice. Uh, uh, but I, I have to say, for me, one of the things that I really want to learn more about is the student experience. Yes. because I don't think people are paying enough attention to that and the student experience is so vital. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of, of, of richer students, uh, adults, um, who are, are living through this and what it means for them. I'm trying to think of a traditional age undergrad, uh, being an 18-year-old uh, and, and what they experience and what stories they can tell. And I really, really hope that not only will higher education take those stories seriously, but also that we'll include students in our planning uh, as we try to rebuild and recreate higher education. Yeah, can I just follow up on that? Because I just did a panel for the NASPA conference about uh, bringing student voices into the planning processes and how that can be done. So absolutely, we need to be more student-centered during this time period, and we absolutely must understand what's happening with students and get away from this blaming students for what's going on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Rich. Yeah, I'd say I think we're learning from this pandemic how integral K through higher education education yes. is to everything we do, right? Yes. Uh, what are the numbers? 20% plus of Americans spend part of their day in a school of some sort, I think something like that. And, and schools impact their communities and communities impact their schools. Um, I do worry about the mental aspects of everything that's going on for our students too. So I've actually encouraged, if possible, for uh, faculty in my college to meet, have optional meetings that, you know, are not required, no new material with students. Even if you say, you know, we're going to meet in a park out mm -hmm. in, in outdoors, you know, with physical distancing and just kind of connect with the students, have them see each other, if that can be done. In our case, a lot of our students live in a couple of suburbs or communities, uh, you know, within about five miles of campus. And so it is possible to just say, hey, you know, on Saturday, I'm going to be at this park. If anybody in the area wants to show up just to say hi, and if you have any questions about the class or anything like that, just to have that in-person social connection in a safe way on a, on a day where it's, where it's possible. And the last thing I'll say is we're in for a really rough ride this winter. So you just everybody's got to keep their guard up as much as they can and, and bear down and be resilient. And we need to battle this thing together to get through it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this has been amazing. Um, and so I just want to give a shout out to the folks on our podcast who are going to be listening to this. And uh, for those who are watching the recording, um, thanks for joining us as well as our live audience. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, just join us again next week. We'll be discussing um, a bunch of different topics. And then in two weeks, we'll be, getting, we'll be focusing probably a bit on the election. <laughs> so we'll yeah. be on the fourth. Uh, so take us out, Mike. 
All right. Thanks for joining.